The term Aristotle is used to represent a family of affiliates, which is comprised of Aristotle Capital Management, Aristotle Capital Boston, Aristotle Credit Partners, and Aristotle Atlantic Partners, which collectively operate under a unified platform known as Aristotle. Each firm is an independent investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 as amended. Welcome to the Power of Patience, Aristotle's podcast, where we cover different topics of interest. I'm Catalina Ginas, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Aristotle Capital, and I will be your host today. In today's episode, we're going to be learning about uranium, what is it used for, why is it important for nuclear energy. We're also going to talk about fears surrounding nuclear energy and why we think this is an important source of clean energy for the world. And so for this, I will be speaking with Alberto Jimenez Crespo. Alberto is a senior member of Aristotle Capital's investment team. His experience includes being a portfolio manager, also a research analyst. Welcome to the episode. It's great having you here, Alberto. Thank you for having me, Catalina. It's uh, great to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, I'm, I'm from Spain. That's where I grew up. And my, my technical background relevant to what I think we're going to talk about today is that I am a mining engineer and uh, I have a master's in uh, Colorado School of Mines as well. For those of you who might not be familiar with natural resources, think of uh, Colorado School of Mines as the harbor of rocks. Oh, harbor of rocks. <laughs> so I'm very, very happy that uh, you chose this topic because uranium is actually a very different um, commodity. It's a very differentiated industry. Well, great. So why don't we start with that? What is uranium? So uranium is, uh, think about a silverly white metal. And if you imagine an element that is very dense, think of lead. I think we're all familiar with lead. Well, uranium would be 70% denser than that. And so the feature that is also very unique is that it is the only naturally occurring fissile element on Earth. So what does that mean? It means that it's a material capable of sustaining a chain reaction of nuclear fission. And so that is uh, very important to what we're going to talk about today. So even though it's pretty much everywhere, think of that in your soil and water and your house and everywhere. Typically, it occurs in, in higher concentrations in the mineral that's called uranite. And so the majority of the um, isotopes of uh, uranium, what we call U-238, call it 99.3% of the world uranium occurs in this isotope. So there's uranium everywhere, but the one we're going to talk about is what, 0.7% of that uranium is the one that is relevant for our discussion today? Yeah, yeah. So much, uh, good point. So much for rounding. Uh, if it wasn't for that 0.7%, that is really what we call um, U-235, uh, we wouldn't be talking today. And the, the, the life as, as we know it, it would just not, not exist. It would not be possible. And so that is really the importance of that huge minority of the 0.7%. And so what is this U-235? Uh, we're just going to call it uranium. What is it used for? The only significant commercial use of uranium is, is really to uh, power nuclear plants. And so the, the generation of electricity. And uh, there's about 427 reactors globally today. And 56 or so are under construction. So you wouldn't think of that as if you drive throughout California, 
you wouldn't think that this is such a growing industry because you will not see any. In fact, in the U.S., we've been shutting down some of our reactors. But if you travel throughout Asia, the Middle East, and some other parts of the world, you will see that uh, there's a recognition, which is growing, that nuclear role is really a must when it comes to providing safe, affordable, carbon-free, baseload, reliable electricity. And that is a key word, reliable. So despite all these massive investments that we've seen, including in the U.S., in clean energies, renewables in the last call it 15 years, the reality is that about 85% of global electricity grid is run by carbon emitting sources of thermal power. So we have a huge uh, uh, work to do in order to diversify away from that. So before we get too much into the discussion of nuclear, which we will, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where is this uranium found? Where can or can we find some of that uranium? <laughs> yeah. So for, for the purpose of, of commercial use, and that's what they call in mining ore grade uranium. There are only three countries that you can go to, and that is Australia, Kazakhstan and Canada. And uh, if you think of high grade deposits, those will be deposits that will provide uranium with a very low cost. There's only one country, which is Canada. And so if you're looking for high-grade deposits, that's where you have to go. And then the, the interesting thing about this industry is that it's highly consolidated. There's only eight companies that provide, call it 83% of the, uh, of the global supply. So everybody is familiar with, or many people are familiar with the uh, OPEC and oil and gas. So this is uh, significantly more consolidated than that. And so those operators will have mines that... The same operator may have mines in Kazakhstan, Australia, and Canada, right? They yeah, diversify then, that way, I guess, geographically. Yeah, yeah. Have you been to a uranium mine? Yeah, I've been actually in uh, in the three uh, countries. In Kazakhstan, uh, I, I was being chased by, by a sandstorm. Uh, so as we landed in Almaty and we had to go to, to visit the engineers in the uh, uranium field, um, that's the first time I've been chased by a sandstorm. And, it was it was not fun, but it was exciting. Something to tell to be able to tell a story about. Going back to the topic, I do remember in some of our investment meetings, uh, you were once talking about that there was a mismatch between where the uranium that is produced and where that uranium is going to be consumed. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a good point, because this is a very strategic commodity, as you can imagine. Um, you cannot just buy this in the futures market, just like you would uh, trade orange juice or copper, any other commodity. Yeah, believe me, there will not be delivery. <laughs> so don't go to Amazon and try to order uranium. It will not, it will not come. That I no, guarantee. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> and so 80% or so of the production is, is, is in the hands of state-owned enterprises. This is very strategic. And you're right. The mismatch in the planet is very significant in that 70% uh, or so comes from countries that have very little consumption because they have no nuclear plants, while 90% of the consumption comes from countries with very little production, including the United States. Interesting. So how is uranium mined? Yeah, so there are mainly three ways. Now, once the uh, ore body is discovered by and defined by exploration, which takes a while. Up until the 80s, 1980s, the main way, what's what we call open pit mining, which is a hole in the ground. And as geological properties uh, change, 
underground mining is being used when the ore is too deep. So it doesn't make sense economically to open pit. But most recently in the last two decades, the majority of the uranium, more so, is coming from what's called in situ recovery. So what that is, is that you have a hole that is drilled into the ore and then a, a solution is used to dissolve that uranium. And then you pump it up to the to the surface. Think of this as um, a commodity that has to be processed. You cannot just bring it out to the surface and then ship it to the nuclear reactor. So you, so you have to go through three main processes. The first one would be call it the uh, mining and then you mill it. So you crash it and you add some chemicals. And that's what you will probably hear in the movies when they talk about yellow cake or in the media. And so it's really not scary and it's just not uh, something that is dangerous. It's just a yellow colored powder and there's not much you can do with it. And now it sounds pretty scary when you think of, oh, it has yellow cake. <laughs> it's not really a big deal. But then in order for you to be able to uh, start thinking of utilizing these powder, you have to transform into a gas, which is called uranium hexafluoride or UF6, and that will be brought to the uh, enrichment facilities. And this is a very key part of the value chain. It is probably the highest uh, buyers of entry business in the world. This is very secretive. You cannot just copy the blueprints or you go to YouTube. You know how everybody now goes to YouTube to get things done? and say, yeah. how do I build uh, an, an enrichment machine? No, you cannot do that. It's very secretive, it's very strategic, and there are very few facilities around the world. So if you really have an enrichment plant, it's uh, a very hard business to replicate. Once you take it there, the reason why enrichment is needed is that the majority of the reactors around the world is what we call light water reactors. Those are the majority that you're going to see, certainly in the United States. They require, uh, remember we talked about U35 earlier, that 0.7%. Yep. Okay, yep. so you need about 3 to 5% uh, concentration of U235 in order to use that into a reactor. But then by nature, you only get 0.7% concentration. So you have to spin it into these machines to bring up the concentration. That's what enrichment is. So finally, the last part of the process is you form these pellets uh, of uranium that have massive energy density, put them in a tube made of zirconium and create like a tower. And that's what you ship to the nuclear reactor. You probably uh, fuel the reactor twice a year. So this is a very efficient way of, of generating energy. So when you were talking about the yellow cake, that didn't sound so scary. But as you kept talking more and more about this enrichment, I do have to say that sounds a little bit scary. And so maybe that's a good segue. You know, people have strong opinions about nuclear energy, nuclear plants. It sounds scary. People don't want to have it next to their homes. Also, people have flashbacks of more recent images like what happened in Fukushima, but also back in the day with the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and accident. So tell us what you think about that and, and whether those concerns, you know, are those are those real concerns? Should they be? Yeah, you're right. Nuclear radiation freaks people out. It's just uh, something you can't see. And we've been shaped um, our opinions into uh, having a lot of fear about this. And so, you know, if you talk to environmental groups and people that are drafting energy policy, uh, you'll see that they feed into people's emotions. And what that has created, in our opinion, is that there's a big gap between perception and reality. And so we find that there's a significant embedded biases in the thinking of people, particularly when these debates occur in public about what you just mentioned about the issue of radioactivity 
and whether uh, nuclear energy is safe or not. So we at Aristotle like to do our own research, our own independent analysis, and we try to stay away from psychological biases that might create what we call blind spots and that, that can impair your judgment. And so that's what we've done in this, in this case as well. So what we found is that the reality is that natural substances contain some form of radioactive material, whether you like it or not. Soil, rocks, rivers, and oceans. So since we're in LA, think about, Catalina, think about your, your backyard. And so every time you're going to go and, and do a barbecue or whatever, you can tell your friends or next time, try these, that they're going to be on top of a few hundred grams of uranium. And so you could think of your backyard being slightly radioactive, but that shouldn't scare you because call it 80% or so of uh, all the ionizing radiation that people are exposed to, you and I, everybody are exposed to, occurs naturally. Really? No, no me lo puedo creer. Radiación en el jardín? We have radiation in the backyard? I'm not scared about that radiation. I'm scared about the other 20%. Yes, there's this whole notion about artificial radiation, as you know, and that is radiation that we have created. But they, there's a huge benefits uh, to humanity that we have to think about. How so? Well, in medicine, if you think about diagnostics, uh, treatment and research, agriculture, uh, food preservation, manufacturing jet engines, uh, Think about radioactive tracers also help analyze pollutants. If you talk to archaeologists, uh, paleontologists, people running a museum, consumer products, um, for example, in smoke detectors, I'm sure you have smoke detectors in your house, right? They will not insure your house if you don't. And so you cannot exclude that from the system. You, you cannot have the lives that we have today and function without these uh, forms of artificial radiation. I'm going to keep pushing back a little bit because I, I get that. And also, if I have to get an X-ray, fine, they'll, you know, I'll get some radiation. But that's different from radiation of a nuclear plant. And I, I would guess that if I had a nuclear plant two miles from my house, I would probably be concerned about that radiation and my family and not so much about the X-ray or when I have to go to the dentist and get an X-ray. Good point. Let's say you include all the military testing and all the accidents that we have in the nuclear industry and accounts for 1% of all the radiation people are routinely exposed to. In fact, if, if you were to think about the nuclear fuel cycle, which is what we're talking about here, it only accounts for 0.01% of the total radiation. So the main issue that every policymaker should be thinking as of a society is that whether we like it or not, today, call it 37%, almost 40% of the, of the global electricity that we're consuming is coming from coal. And so a lot of my friends think of, well, isn't that coal something from the Middle Ages and, and um, like something from the past, while there's uh, so much coal that we're consuming? in today's world. So why is that an issue? Well, first, because it kills a lot of people. If we think about the WHO as the source, the World Health Organization, they claim that pollution-related sicknesses kill over 7 million people a year. And so think about it. And in the life of a nuclear reactor, call it a few decades, is just killing you know a whole country, a big country. It's just huge. It cannot, we cannot operate like that, killing so many people. 
a nuclear accident is very, very rare is what you're saying. Very like rare. That, and of course, we don't want to diminish what those cause, but it's extremely rare. And the pollution generated by coal, it's much more deadly. And so I guess that gets us to the climate change. When, when we talk about nuclear as being part of the solution, it has to be part of the solution in order to help with climate change. Yes, you're right. We don't want to downplay any loss of life. And what we want to do is we want to prevent massive losses of life with the, with the technology that we do have today. So according to the uh, IEA, the International Energy Agency, they know this. And so they're projecting that we will need to double the world's uh, nuclear output by 2050 to reach uh, the net zero energy targets that every government now is talking about. And as much as we have invested massively into uh, renewables, in the last, particularly in the last 15 years, right? It's been very significant and, and that's all good, but that cannot be the only solution. The, the resources that are needed, the land, the unreliability, the investments in, in grid that we need to support that. Any way you analyze this issue, you're going to come up with the conclusion that nuclear is a must. We have to have that in, into the power mix. One statistic that I think is interesting is that since I was born in the 1970s, is that if we were to replace all the coal-fired plants, dirty plants that we were talking about earlier, uh, with nuclear, we will reduce the CO2 emissions back to the the level when I was born. So that's like going back to the to the world when I was a baby. And so I think that's just uh, wonderful. And so we should be embracing anything that has to do with with lowering the carbon footprint in the planet. It's interesting that you were saying, yes, a, a lot of countries have come out with their plans for net zero. And so you would think then that, um, and, and there is currently under construction, there, there are nuclear plants around the world that are being constructed. Why has the price of uranium then been so low for so long, for a while? It's just, right, it was, it was yeah, very this, low. Uh, good, good point. I mean, you would think that with all the stuff that we've talked about today, all the attributes and all the benefits and all these uh things that in the last 14 years, so since we've seen a massive amount of liquidity pumped into the financial markets, we would have seen massive investments into uh, making sure that we have enough investment in the supply chain in, in, in nuclear. The the opposite has been the case, unfortunately. I mean, if I gave you the an energy option, think about um, let, let's just visualize this for a second for the energy density of what we're talking about here. Think about uh, 0.24 ounces a pellet. And so so many people say, what does that mean, 0.24 ounces? So think about the tip of your nail. And the energy provided by that pellet from uranium will be equivalent to 2,000 pounds of coal. So with that sort of magic, right, and energy transformation, you will think that we would have been all very excited. And to your point, uranium price would have gone to the moon and we will be talking about a booming industry in terms of investments. So let me give you this a statistic that will convince you that the opposite has occurred. So over the last five years, the nuclear reactors around the world, they have consumed 800 million pounds. And we know that because you, you, you don't buy, if you own a nuclear reactor, you're a utility company, you don't purchase this on a spot market. I mean, this is a, a very uh, sensitive thing for your chain. So you have to con contract this from the miners. And so the book of business is transparent and you can see the material. So we know that. So they have consumed 800 million pounds. Uh, and guess what? They only contracted uh, 400. So going forward, there is a gap between what they need 
because you don't shut down a nuclear plant, right? This is based all 24 hours between what they need and what they have in their books. So if you go to 2035, it's 1.4 billion pounds of uh, uh, unsecure material that, that they need. So think of an industry of 160 million pounds, right? That's what um, 800 divided by five is, 160 million pounds consumption per year. And with a gap of 1.4 billion pounds, it's huge. So why is this an issue? Because it cannot be solved uh, short term. And um, normally, if you talk to mining engineers, you're going to see that the average life of a mine is about 16 years from discovery to production. For uranium, as you could imagine, being more difficult, more regulated, more strategic, it's at least two decades. And so we, we should be investing, to your point, massively into this now, but we're not. And so that, to me, is the, uh, the big gap and the big opportunity. And Alberto, I have uh, one last question. That would be, does Aristotle invest in this industry that we've talked about today? Yes, we do. In our portfolios, we have exposure to the uranium industry, and we specifically invested in a company that have what we believe to be a sustainable, long-term competitive advantage. Thank you, Alberto. This was very interesting. I think this concludes our episode for today. I'm sure we will have some follow-up questions as there's so much to learn about um, the world of uranium, the world of nuclear, and that Aristotle will continue to understand these industries and all other sources of clean energy. And we'll do that with a long-term perspective as we always do. Thank you, Alberto. This has been very interesting. Uh, we appreciate you joining. Thank you for having me. We appreciate your time. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and learn more about Aristotle. Thank you for listening to The Power of Patience. To learn more about Aristotle, please visit www.aristotlecap.com or follow the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Come back next time for discussion on energy with Greg Padilla, Portfolio Manager and Senior Global Research Analyst at Aristotle Capital. Until then, on behalf of Aristotle, thank you for listening.